looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy Train Radio? You look like hell. And I could look the same. What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Truth, 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 I'm one crazy nerf is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day and special seasonal gift day. But also, let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansopery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansopery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends you. I'm Paul Santa Cruz, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio.
Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, I am waiting for my copy to arrive, which is a good thing, but I did happen to pop into a place called a library, folks. They have books and stuff like that, and they happen to have a copy of Making JFK Matter, Popular Memory, and the 35th President of the United States. So yes, we are going to go little historical, folks. The author who is joining us, and like I was joking with him prior to hit and record, I should say that according to the internet, which we know is 100% truthful, he has a BA in history from or Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, and an MA in history from Southern Methodist University over there in Dallas. Let's go ahead and say hello to Mr. Paul H. Santa Cruz. How you doing, sir? Very well, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me on to talk about my work. Absolutely. And before we dive into talking about thy book, again, I want to reference something I saw online. And like I said, I know everything is true there. I know I told that joke three times in two minutes, but hey, screw you. It's my show. Is it perfect? No, but I don't see you coming up with anything. And that, people, is what grinds my gears. Tom? I read with that history background that you currently are working for the George W. Bush Library as an archivist. Is that true? Correct. Yeah, I've worked there now just over 12 years. So. I got to ask, because this is the history nerd in me, doing what you do over there for the 12 years or so, how much interaction have you had with the former president? I've seen him on a few occasions uh, at the at the annual Christmas parties that they hold here at the library for the for the staff, for the people who work on the foundation side. Uh, so I've I've gotten to talk a little bit with him and with Mrs. Bush uh, on those occasions. It's they're both very nice, very gracious. Um, that that's about the only time during during the year that I see them. But you know. would you would you say they? Because here's the thing, and may, I don't know if this is a, a history nerd in me or what it is, but there is an. And I, this ain't has nothing to do with politics, Democrat, Republican, any of that stuff. But when you're talking the office of presidency, at least in the viewpoint that I have, and like I said, I'm not talking politics, because there has been so few folks to have that office, 46 as we speak, there's an aura about a person that holds that position. Would you say in your few interactions with the Bushes that they are approachable? I would say so. Yeah, he's not. He he jokes around a lot and uh, he's very he's very friendly. He's not difficult uh, at all to talk to. Uh, and, and yeah, you're right. It is. You see people in that kind of a position very differently. And I think there is 
you know, there's always that, that, that question in the back of your mind, how, how easy is it to approach this person? Uh, we, we tend to think of them as somehow different from, from all of us. And, you know, I guess in some ways, you know, certainly in their lifestyle, they are, you know, I can go down the street and get a sandwich and it pro even now it probably would be a little bit difficult for him to do that. Uh, but no, I don't, I, both of them are very friendly, very approachable. I've been knock on wood on this bookshelf here behind me, and we're getting to your book in a second. I was fortunate enough. I have some political signed books. I have a, such a library, whether it be politics, history, sports, all that stuff. And a couple of my political books are signed by, I was able to do in person with former president Carter. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And yeah. You know, History and me. I would like to get my Clinton ones done. I'd like to get the George W. Bush books done eventually. Mm -hmm. All that. It's the history guy me. But in the brief couple minutes there, I had to interact with a uh, former President Carter. He was very humble. Can talk to him. How you doing? Yeah, it was great to be. It was a good positive experience. But they were going into it. I'm like, in my own head, holy shit! Da, 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 da. Yeah. And so it happened because he. Jimmy Carter, for those who don't know, and obviously rules have changed and such since as far as when you lead the presidency, folks, as far as your Secret Service detail and whatnot. And Jimmy Carter, and I'm hoping I'm not telling any nuts this, very seldom uses his detail except for public events and things like that, at least that I'm aware of. So anyway, I was a little in my own head going, oh, my God, how do I... Is it Mr. President? How do you, how do you approach when you, to start the conversation? And it's like, so he happened on this day, happened to be using Secret Service detail and gentlemen's, you know, they're checking a line for this event and all. And I said, I pulled him aside and said, hey, uh, you know, obviously you could tell he was Secret Service and stuff. And so I said, hey, uh, I asked him, you know, hey, how do I approach this? I, w I don't want to be disrespectful and all. Long story short, he was like, oh. He don't he don't like Mr. President because he's not the they take it as the person in office. So mm -hmm. right now that would be Joe Biden. So you, he goes, you can when you first introduce yourself, it could be Mr. Carter or you know what I mean? Right. Guy gave guy gave me the broke down and you know put me at ease answering. I'm like, okay, because I wanted to go in knowing how to approach it. Everything was cool, you know, it was great. And whatnot because those guys deal with these figures all the time so they hey handle it this way yada 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 i've heard that uh president carter uh was still teaching sunday school at the town where he lives in georgia now i don't know if he's doing that right now you know unfortunately i think he had had some health issues in the last uh two or three years but i heard up until fairly recently you could still visit the town in georgia where he lives and go to and go to church at the church at the church where he he attends and he he still does uh sunday school classes Imagine exactly that. yeah exactly and here's the thing with him and i know we've i've sidetracked this and all based on your experience with the library and such but very approachable gentleman as well mr carter and like you said, he with the uh, Sunday school and everything else, still trying to get back to the community is and not the most PC of shows. But I can say this. We do also try to educate 
even though I joke about tongue in cheek with the PC and all. Mr. Carter was, I think, has, how do I put this? Gotten more popular post-presidency looking from a historical standpoint than when he was in office. Because, like you said, there's the Sunday school stuff, the church stuff, giving back to the community, such as the, uh, what's the Habitat for Humanity? And, you know, right. I mean, it's like, right. Yeah, just the different things he's done post being out of office. <clears throat> Still running around like as much as you can in a COVID time at 97, 98 years old, whatever he yeah. may be. I believe he's the oldest living president. I think so. And he, when he's you had at, a very, a very active post-presidency and a very productive post-presidency as well. And I think that, yeah, he, he, I'll leave it up to the historians who research him to, to decide where he fits in the, in the presidential ranking. But, you know, there's no question that he did a lot after, after he's left office. And yeah, I think that that has a lot to do with, with the, the regard that the public has for him. Yeah, it's changed people's opinion based on, you know, post-presidency. But speaking of that, and that's a good way to transition to making JFK matter, which you came out with several years ago. It was uh, 2012 or 2013. That you 2015. Had. Okay, so it was a little yeah. later. Excuse me. Yeah. So that is actually one of the subjects you talk about in the book as far as at least that I had picked up on in terms of there's a certain myth about JFK, even almost 60 years post assassination. We're 58, give or take, uh, as of this recording in 2022. Yeah, actually, yeah, going to be 59. 59, hard to believe. In in November. Yeah, Yeah, I I had to do quick math to even use my fingers and toes there, folks. (laughs) But there is a myth to the the legend of jfk so how would you describe the actual myth and has it grown over the years since 1963 i would describe the myth as very very resilient and it diverges from the like the historiography the historical literature that that has come out on president kennedy we still remember him very fondly if you look at public opinion polls, people still rank him very highly as, as a chief executive. And that what we know about JFK as a person and as a leader, it hasn't made a whole lot of impact on the, the, the still very high regard that we hold that we hold him in. What I mean is, You've had you've had a lot of information come out about his private life, the you know the seamier side of his life. As a president, it can be a little hard to judge him because he was he he wasn't in office even three full years. Mm-hmm. Um, he had his successes and things that you know maybe weren't so successful, but it really I don't think it's impacted. Uh, the 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 love that people still have for President Kennedy, and we still hold him up, I think, as as an example of how a chief executive should should decide things. Uh, you know, the way that he carries himself. I think we, you know, for a long time, I think presidents stood in the shadow of Franklin Roosevelt. When you look at what he accomplished and the impact that he had on the country, on the presidency, 
And I think that we do the same thing um, with, with President Kennedy. And that's interesting you say that, but that's a whole different can of worms. And as we sit, you will not see a thing like FDR be elected to four terms. And that rule and law was actually changed after his death. But fast forward, folks, he came in after Hoover for the Great Depression and all that fun stuff, and then went through towards the end of World War II in 45 when he passed away. So there's a lot of ground that he was in FDR there was involved with that changing to, I would say, what we know of today's society helping establish social security and right. we can get into so much with fdr but going back to my first questionnaire that gives a dilemma between how history and historians would judge jfk's presidency and legacy versus how he's regarded which you talk about about to public memory a la promise versus performance right so and, and of course, and of course, his death, his death has a lot to do with it because you know FDR died after twelve years in office. Uh, we know what he did, you know, at least to try to fight the Great Depression. He led us through ninety eight percent of World War II. His place in history was assured, and and he was you know not to be disrespectful or anything, but I mean, he he was a very sick man at the time that he died. President Kennedy, the just the sheer shock of his death, that certainly contributed to the way that we see him, the way that we see him now. And I think that that when you compare the way we see the time he served and the, you know, the period before that and the period afterward, it really marks a transitional point because it is in the period after his assassination that you see you see more and more divisions uh, politically. That's when you get really the worst of, you know, the civil rights problems. Of course, we got into Vietnam. You have Watergate. You have all these things that that undercut the public's trust in in the in their government and in I guess institutions in general. And so we see we see his time, his presidency as as part of the like what came before that we see it still as this more of an idealized period of our history that that's how a lot of people remember it is that really the way that it was in in some respects no it wasn't but you know it's me memory and history are not they, they they can it's not unheard of that they diverge and i think this is one of those places where they certainly do that well with that being said i know you talk about in the book, at least how I attempted to understand, excuse me. And folks, you know, it might be scary that I try this, but I took it as, and folks, you can look them up with this. There was a bit of Pierre Nora's uh, notion of uh, Lou de Memora. Excuse oh, me. Yeah. My, fr my French oh. is bad, but, or <laughs> otherwise, place a memory as far as the influence. So what was your philosophy in trying to mm -hmm. look at things when I'm going to sit down and do this book? 
I didn't, I didn't intend for it to be anything highly theoretical. And what I did with Pierre Nora's Liu de Memoir idea, I, I wanted to use that as a way of like a, a bit of a framework for thinking about what I was going to do with President Kennedy. What you had with Nora was he took various symbols, various figures from French history and showed how how memory of those things has been contested. So, for example, Joan of Arc has been used as, you know, not a religious symbol, but she's also been been captured as a symbol of French nationalism as well. How are these different groups, different groups using memory of these figures, you know, to further their own cause or to hold this person up as an example of what they want to do? And my argument in the book was that popular memory is inherently is inherently practical it isn't some hazy hard to understand concept we we memorialize people not only out of love for those people or you know because we're trying to um remember what they believed in but also because invoking those people uh, remembering them carries legitimacy and power. You can use popular memory to accomplish certain things. And so I didn't, I didn't want this to be a comprehensive look. I did more of a case study approach. So for example, I looked at how the city of Dallas memorialized President Kennedy in the years after his death to try to um, atone for the, the criticism and the hostility that came our way uh, a lot of people were very upset at Dallas. A lot of people blamed really the city for his death. And they built a memorial to him and played up aspects of our memory of President Kennedy, his civic mindedness, his moderation, those, those kinds of things, as a way of saying, this is what we also believe in. You know, we're not these horrible people. We're not a bunch of ex- extremists here. We, we also loved President Kennedy, and we are going to memorialize him just like anybody else. Um, and it had, it had interesting results because we built a memorial to President Kennedy here in Dallas, but it, it was so neutral in its message, in, in, you know, in its form, that I'm really not sure how successful it was as a place of remembering. Um, a lot of people, when they come to Dallas, they'll go to the Sixth Floor Museum, which is in the what used to be the Texas School Book Depository. And I'm sure if you asked a lot of people, oh, did you know there's a memorial to President Kennedy in Dallas, they would think that's what you were talking about. Nope, the actual memorial to him is a couple blocks away. It's, it is a very modern looking structure. And I'm not, you know, an art critic or an art historian. I don't, I, I don't look at it in that sense. But you, if you, I, I've got photographs, a couple photographs of it in the book. It's really not clear what's being remembered. It was intended to be very neutral so that everybody could really take from it what they wanted, interpret JFK the way they wanted to, which is all well and good as an idea, but it's not really satisfying when you, you have a conception of President Kennedy he was inspiring. He stood up to the Soviets. He fought for civil rights. He forwarded the space race, whatever it might be. And you look at the memorial that we built here, and there's really none, none of any of that there. And so the irony is that 
the central instrument that Dallas created for remembering him, I think to a large extent has been forgotten. Um, I look, I look also at how Lyndon Johnson used his memory. Lyndon Johnson memorialized President Kennedy, probably you know for for civil rights more than anything else. President Kennedy fought for civil rights, and we need to pass his civil rights legislation if we are to properly remember him. Um, mm-hmm. It it would be you know I think the idea was it would be unthinkable for us to let this moment in our history, you know, pass us by without without redeeming what he wanted to do. Um, So there was that, there was very much a high-minded purpose to it, but of course there was also political calculation behind it because LBJ is also trying to, he's trying to cast himself as President Kennedy's successor, not just constitutional successor, but ideological successor as well. And by passing the things that President Kennedy, you know, believed in that he wanted, Lyndon Johnson is also starting to build his own record so that he can then get his presidency up and running. Um, He was, I would say, partly successful in doing that. He, of course, got civil rights and many of these other things passed. But I think one one of the risks of memory is, or the challenges, is to use it, but not at the same time get used by it. Because you can build someone up so much that you are always going to fall short by comparison. And I think that's what happened with Lyndon Johnson, that he, President Kennedy over time was seen as the noble visionary leader untainted by, you know, by politics. And Lyndon Johnson, on the other hand, was seen as, you know, the wheeler, wheeler dealer politician who just got things done, which is not entirely fair to LBJ, but, you know, it was LBJ who, to a great extent, took the blame for Vietnam rather than President Kennedy. And a lot of people would say, oh, President Kennedy never would have done that. He never would have gotten us involved in Vietnam. That, of course, is that that, of course, is its own debate. Maybe he would have, maybe he wouldn't have. But, you know, if you're LBJ, you are you're in the unenviable position of never getting the credit, but always, always taking the blame when things went wrong. Oh, President Kennedy would have done it totally differently. Yeah, because and that leads to one of my questions I would like to ask you as somebody who has studied history, if not the same amount or more than I have, obviously more because you have the MA and such. But with that being said, there is some literature out there that says that so the assassination happens, folks, chronologically. Then you read that over the weekend back in D.C. after LBJ is sworn in and all that fun stuff. And he has a meeting with essentially Kennedy's cabinet still, because obviously this was a traumatic thing and it wasn't a normal transition. But one of the topics that I had read and don't know how true it is, was one of the big things that LBJ had brought up to in this cabinet meeting was about proceeding with Vietnam, as you mentioned there. Do you know if there's any truth to that? Because and the reason I asked that was in some of that same literature, and I know it's a different topic, that if 
President Kennedy had lived, two of his major goals, if he had won in 64, would have been, A, addressing Vietnam. That would have been a big focus. But the other thing would have been the Cold War at the time, because some say that he was dealing with Russia's leadership at the time via the Pope in some of those readings. So with both of that, and I know they're big topics, what do you know on that? The idea that uh, President Johnson was making major decisions on Vietnam right after the assassination, I think that that got a lot of play from Oliver Stone's film JFK. That's how he depicts it. I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how, how accurate that is. It's... <laughs> 1964, I think, no matter which one of them was president, I, I'm not sure you would have had any major decision on Vietnam because, you know, you're trying to win an election. You're not going to make any major policy decisions, deviations at that point. Um, and it isn't until 1965, of course, that we start getting that's when sustained bombing begins and we start we start putting in troops and all of that. I, I, I'm not sure how much. Lyndon Johnson was deviating from what President Kennedy would have done because we don't know what he would have done either. I've read things, uh, bits and pieces, where he supposedly said in the weeks before his death that, yeah, when I get back from Texas, we're, we're going to have to take a, a very serious and sober look at what we're doing in Vietnam. That was the period right after the South Vietnamese president had been overthrown and assassinated. And President Kennedy was was horrified by that, and that's always been used by some to argue that he he had had it with Vietnam at that point. He realized that it was a mess and that it was time to get out. It's possible, but it something important to, to consider is that so many of the top advisors that Lyndon Johnson had, his Secretary of State, his Secretary of Defense, and so many of the other people advising him on Vietnam, they were the very same people who, who he had from President Kennedy, you know, and they're, you know, the advice, the collective advice they gave him is that we need to fight in Vietnam. And there's really no reason to think that why, why would they have given President Kennedy, you know, any different advice? I think it's more, I think President Kennedy was a little bit more skeptical of the military, especially after the Bay of Pigs mess. And he he had already proven himself in a way at, at, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. He stood up to the Soviets. We, we, you know, we got them, we got the missiles out of Cuba. He may have felt that he had more room to maneuver and say, you know what, Vietnam is not, this, this isn't something we want to get further involved in. Whereas LBJ, his interest had always been in domestic politics, domestic policy, um, he may have felt that he, he had more to prove. And if this is what President Kennedy did, I need to follow through on it. And he always maintained, Lyndon Johnson did, that what he did in Vietnam was he was just following what President Kennedy did. He was just doing what he believed President Kennedy, you know, pursuing at least the general policy that President Kennedy would have pursued. Again, that there, of course, is a lot of speculation there. Um, it, I don't know if it's something that can ever be resolved, and it's something that after after Johnson took over and after things in Vietnam really started going south, 
then then that's when you have people close to President Kennedy saying he never would have done that, which maybe not. But then, you know, they're 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 just protecting their guy, of course. And so it's hard to say. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring that up because I actually pulled it out recently the director's cut here of JFK. Oh, yeah. Stones. And that's actually one of the names that I have on my notes, because for those spoiler folks, since the movie came out in the early 90s, Kevin Costner plays district attorney Jim Garrison, who is known for trying to take the case to court and because of the Oswald's ties to New Orleans before he went to Dallas. And I'm not going to do a complete deep dive because with 50, almost 59 years, there's so much we can dive into. But when we look at this whole story of JFK, the assassination, just the whole picture, how important, and I should say with the movie too, Oliver Stone used a lot of material from Mr. Garrison's three books, particularly one of the three books. But with that being said, we can look at this whole kit and caboodle of JFK and such. How do you picture Jim Garrison from a historical standpoint in this story? He was treated uh, very well in Oliver Stone's film. He was, you know, you, you, you see the film and he is portrayed as this heroic, seemingly lone crusader uh, for the truth. Uh, I have read that isn't, that isn't quite how I have read that Jim Garrison was, he, he was seen in the new Orleans historical in the new Orleans legal community as a bit of a loose cannon that he, he would make crazy accusations and not have anything to back them up. And if I remember correctly in the movie at the very end, there is a postscript where it says that where it talks about nobody, nobody has ever been, successfully prosecuted nobody has ever been convicted for their role in president kennedy's assassination um the problem is that the people he brought charges against from what i've heard you know the, they were they were all found not guilty because jim garrison had no case it wasn't because it wasn't because of some malevolent uh you know perversion of justice or anything like that um i talk about about the film jfk uh, you know, at, from the standpoint of how how it may or may not have influenced memory. And when it came out, there were people who were worried that younger viewers especially would see it as documentary history. Because by that point, there, even though hard to believe the early 90s is, you know, a ways past us, 1991, I think, is when it came out. That's, you know, that that's that's almost 30 years after the assassination. You have a lot of people who they, they grew up not remembering anything about it. And then they go and see this film and they're going to think, Oh, this is how it really happened. Uh, you know, the CIA bumped off president Kennedy or, you know, there was this massive federal government plot. Um, I, I don't know how much it decisively impacted uh, how the public thought about, thought about the event because um, I think if you look at public opinion polls, people thought before that there actually was a conspiracy and people thought afterward that, you know, I don't know if it moved 
if it moved things decisively, you know, over the long term anyway. But I think that it, it, it is a tribute to President Kennedy's memory that you have all such massive forces are assumed to be behind his, his death. It, it gives the whole thing a lot, you know, whether or not it's true, whether, you know, wherever the truth is, it makes President Kennedy and his assassination much more consequential if we, if we believe that it was a conspiracy and that he died for, 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 some major, for, ma- for some major reason. Either he was a martyr for civil rights or he was assassinated because he wanted to get us out of Vietnam and, you know, like redirect the trajectory of the Cold War. It, it makes all of that much more compelling rather than he was assassinated on his way to a luncheon, a political luncheon in Dallas by a, you know, whatever, 24-year-old warehouse clerk who, you know, was a loser. It, it, it you know, what, what if that is the truth? What if that is all there is to it? It, it does impact the way we think about all of this, doesn't it? It does. And obviously you mentioned Oswald there and he worked at the uh, Sixth Floor Museum, which was the Texas Depository, as you said. And there's so much on there with him and whether his Marine training, he had lived in Russia and then New Orleans and tried to get into Cuba. And there's just a lot there to unpack, mm-hmm. which that, that story has been told, obviously, don't want to spend four hours unpacking that as well. But, you know, it's funny that he was so that factually Kennedy was shot 1230 announced dead at one central time and Oswald was arrested at the Texas theater, give or take two fifteen, If I remember that right time within, you know, hour and a half or so, and then was killed by Jack Ruby, who was an informant nightclub owner. And, but I'm surprised he wasn't, or maybe you can correct me on the timeline here. He wasn't arrested before because i think it might have been i don't know if it was earlier in 63 or maybe late 62 that he apparently attempted to shoot former uh, major general walker outside his home oswald has been suspected of that yeah edwin walker was a a former um general i believe in the in the military and he he lived here in Dallas, and he had acquired a reputation as very much a right winger, right wing causes. And there is speculation that Lee Harvey Oswald, yeah, went to his home here in Dallas and and attempted to kill him. It, it he missed. He you know he didn't end up he didn't end up doing that. Um, I don't I don't really know what the what the consensus on that is, whether it's it's likely that he did that or or, or not. Um, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of things about Lee Harvey Oswald that are, that are very, very strange. And even I think to this day, there are parts of his life where we're not entirely sure either where he was or what he was doing or, you know, the. It, it appears that he, for example, as far as what he believed in, that he was a Marxist. He, of course, had gone to the Soviet Union and then come back, came back 
there are other people who argue that he that's really not what he was. He may have been more on the right and that he was more of a gun for hire kind of person that he wanted to get involved in Cuba. And, you know, it, a very, a, a very, a very strange person. And I think he was one of those people who wanted to uh, he saw himself as a I don't know if spy is the right word, but he you know, like he always he, he wanted to do something that would that would put him down in history. Um then again, there are a lot of people who would like to be remembered for something and they don't go out and murder people. So, uh, you know, it's it's hard to say if if he is the only one, if if he was the only assassin, if he did act alone, and I I really don't take any position on it. I, you know, there's really no way you can. But, you know, I, I've always wondered, well, so then what was his motivation for doing that then? Exactly. And you know, you, you know beat me to the punch about going to ask your opinion on that whether he was or whatnot but you said that you don't take a stance on that well i guess i I guess i would say i don't know how firm my stance is i think more likely than not it was a conspiracy but i have read a couple of books gerald posner wrote a book uh where he argued that 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 oswald was the lone gunman there's another guy vincent bugliosi who wrote a, a dictionary sized work uh where he also argued that Lee Harvey Oswald was was the lone was the lone assassin. It, w- it wasn't the CIA. It wasn't the FBI. It wasn't Cubans. It wasn't any of that. It, it, Lee Harvey Oswald was it. I, I will admit they they do make a, 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 a good case, you know, in places. I, I don't think the the lone gunman theory can be automatically dismissed. Yeah. And I know there was, a, if I remember correctly, a third study, I should say, or commission on this. But obviously, there's the Warren Commission, the two biggies, I would say, the Warren Commission that was started more after the Katzenbach memo, which is a whole different, you know, the following week. But versus the in the 70s, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which included, as you mentioned earlier, the civil rights, that study and committee also looked at. Martin Luther King's assassination in 68. Right. And during that, if I remember, if I have my uh, studies correct, during the House Select Committee on Assassinations, they had a famous sharpshooter, Carlos Hatchcock, actually attempt to redo the, from the distance and the height, all that fun stuff. And he's a, like I said, legendary sharpshooter who was involved in Vietnam and everything else like that go look him up as well folks who in his opinion felt that couldn't have been done with those bullets and those guns and such like that like i said you can read more detail on that on your own time because like i said in so much material out there we can unpack different things for hours and hours so but when you're looking at that the warren commission versus the house select committee do you think one has more weight than other another it's possible that the house select my my own opinion the house select committee simply because they would have had i think more time to look into it you're further removed from the event and so things aren't going to be quite as politicized uh you know emotion driven and the technology that they would have had to to investigate would have been better um but how firm of a conclusion did they reach? 
Well, they, they concluded that it, it more likely than not was the result of a conspiracy. Well, all right, what, what, do we, what, what are we to make, make of that? Um, one of the things that they looked at was the, the, um, the sound recording, the recording from one of the police motorcycles. One of the, mo one of the police motorcycles in the motorcade, uh, the microphone was accidentally switched on during the shooting and it was recorded on a dicta belt at police headquarters. And when they looked at it, they initially thought that, there, that it captured the sound of a fourth shot. That potentially is huge because Oswald wouldn't have had time to, 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 to shoot off four shots during the, you know, during the time that the, the assassination occurred. So if there was, in fact, a fourth shot, then that means that there was a second gunman. There must have been. Well, but then later on, I think they determined that that was an error, that there wasn't actually a fourth shot on the recording. <laughs> yeah. So what do we so what do we do with all of this? You know, I I still think more likely than not, it, it was a conspiracy. Um, but I'm not entirely certain. And you know, one of the one of the problems is that all of this has gotten so polluted with with the the outlandish conspiracy theories out there, which I don't know, maybe that was inevitable, but you know, it's it's hard. It is. It is a very hard topic to read about and and know. Okay, this this is reasonable. This is true, and this is garbage. <laughs> yeah, because obviously, over the years, there's been restrictions on documents coming out, and there was even debate when Trump was leaving office whether to release certain documents, and when Biden took over, releasing certain documents, even though we're so far removed from the event. But the one that really stood out for me, and this was my last thing I want to bring up, because like I said, I can keep you on here for five hours, but no, we're not going to do it. There's, there, there's no shortage of things to talk about with all exactly. this. Exactly. <laughs> but the thing that I'd like to bring up, and it's a complete cluster, and there was a thing I saw on a JFK Facebook group this afternoon with it, and I'll explain that in a second. The autopsy and thoughts changing because... And the reason I say that is per 1963 laws, folks, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be a lawyer, but in Texas, and I don't know where it stands currently, like I said, don't have a law background and whatnot, but when there is a death such as an assassination or anything like that in Dallas or Texas in general, they do an autopsy and they were supposed to be an autopsy done there, even though everybody knew he died by gunshot, just how the law was in Texas per 1963. But yet there was the whole argument, no, we're taking him back to Washington and from the Secret Service and they got the casket and all that stuff. So the autopsy was done at Vanessa, excuse me, uh, up in Maryland and the doctors who, the military doctors who did that autopsy weren't specifically trained to do autopsies. Where the doctors in, that they had on call in Dallas, that's what they do. So, and I had heard that the Kennedy family had kept the reports and the photographs and all that stuff from the autopsy. And their opinions changed throughout the years as far as what was front to back and 
the shots and what actually happened. So what would your thoughts be with the autopsy and that being a big part of people's thoughts? I, I have heard similar things, and I think there, there, there is dispute about some of it. But, yeah, I've heard that at, at the time it that was not a federal crime. It was only a state crime. And so that's why um, that that's why an autopsy there would have been the appropriate thing to do. And that, yeah, that, of course, isn't what happened. Um, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of the, you know, the, 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 the theorizing about did they, did they get it correct? Did, did they do it correctly at Bethesda where they're locating the wounds and all that? I, I, I do think that it, in retrospect, it would have been better to, to do the autopsy here because it, it may very well have eliminated a lot of doubt and a lot of room for people to speculate about um, that something somehow got covered up um, on the whatever on the, the the trip back to Washington or something happened at Bethesda. It, it would have been it would have been much better to do it here, but I think it's you're you're talking about something that was so that was so shocking and in a way. Not not unprecedented, but you know how on earth do you react to something like that? The normal rules, as much as it would be, as much as we might like it to be the case, the normal rules simply don't apply. Didn't apply here, um, and yeah, I speculation goes on all the time. I've I've heard that Governor Connolly, who of course was also shot, he was wounded. He. He always insisted, he insisted to the day he died, that he and President Kennedy were not hit by the same bullet, which is what, of course, the Warren Commission found, that it was one bullet that hit both of them. And, and Governor Connolly, he was a hunter, so you know, you would think he's going to know something about fire, <laughs> firearms, and, mm -hmm. he, and he, he was sitting right there, and he, he always maintained that that, that that was not correct. Yeah, and yeah. obviously Paul was referencing the magic bullet theory, which yeah. was... Uh, I can't I can't think of his name. He was a senator for the longest time out of Pennsylvania. Oh, uh, Ar Arlen, Arlen Specter. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. He was one of the attorneys during that Warren Commission case. Yeah, I should know that because I'm from the Philadelphia area. It was Arlen oh. Specter. Yep. So, you know, he was part of our region. So his name really stood out when I first started reading on the topic and such. Mm -hmm. But we certainly had a mouthful here, folks, and there's more dive into. And there's still some documents that haven't fully been released and whatnot. But to tie a bow on this, Paul, do you think we'll ever fully know the truth of what happened on that day in November 22nd, 1963? Probably not. Um, so much time has elapsed, and I think the you know the, the the documentary trail you know i i don't i'm not going to get into has has evidence been destroyed has have documents been destroyed i don't know i i don't think we'll ever know the truth because i don't think a lot of people will ever accept anything as the truth and you know there are whatever whatever records are out there that still need to be released once they are released will that satisfy people probably not because people will still insist that things have been destroyed things have been altered um and yeah i i probably we will not ultimately know the truth 
um, it, which is unfortunate because it, however we want to remember President Kennedy and whatever we give him credit for, it was a very traumatic moment in our country's history. And it was, I think, a turning point and, pro- mm-hmm. and, and not, you know, not an entirely a good turning point. If you look at what happened after versus what, what we had before. A lot of people, uh, you know, see it as a as a loss of innocence, not just for the country, but for themselves, and and the fact that we probably will never know exactly what caused this, you know, it, it is very unfair to us as a country, and I think people are right to feel that we got cheated, and that I think is what drives still a lot of the the conspiracy, you know, the the conspiracy industry that we we still don't know what happened here. And, you know, it's, you always hear that it was a coup d'etat, almost like uh, what they were trying to do for the Bay of Pigs and or Cuba's president, Castro, at the time, a younger president at that moment. But like you said, I don't think we'll fully know. And as far as I should bring this up, because, and I'm sure you've seen this stuff as well, too. As far as the evidence is concerned, and obviously different time, different place and all where we are 2022 compared to 1963. But one of the things that always stood out for me and some of this stuff I have read, read, excuse me, was obviously the assassination happened on a Friday. The following Monday, the vehicle that he was killed in and Governor Connolly was shot in, was already being stripped down it back at the factory. It was a Dodge, that was a Dodge vehicle at the time. It was, a, it was a Lincoln Continental. Okay, um, but it, it was being yeah. stripped down. Where the thing with that whole story, and again, you can check that out, Google on that, folks. There is legitimate sources to this story and everything we talked about. But It'll like today that car would be locked down for at least six months mm-hmm. as a crime scene. And so to think that less than three days later, not only was it shipped back to Detroit, it was already stripped down and re- being rebuilt for to still be a presidential limousine. So, yeah, that's 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 what I've heard that they, you know, it probably was not the smartest thing to do i'm not really sure what what led to that but yeah it was later it was later sent back uh to to ford and they put a permanent hard top on the car and yeah it was it was later used by by i think not just lbj but i think you know i think that was still in use into the 70s i believe and it's now it's now on display I think Dearborn, Michigan. I think there's a there's an automobile museum that that has that and several of the other presidential limousines. Yeah, you know, and that would be creepy. I would think for Johnson or Nixon and go, hey, JFK was shot over in that seat there. Yeah, that would just I don't know what the mindset would that would be. That's but that's a whole different. I, I would love to know what the reasoning was was behind that idea. Let's just use the same car and not, yeah, yeah. But, folks, it is the, done by UTN Press. If you're looking for the book, 
It's Making JFK Matter, Popular Memory of the 35th President. Paul H. Santa Cruz, thank you for the time. Well, thank you very much, and I hope you and your your uh, your listeners enjoy the book as well. Thank you. Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hi, this is Caroline Williams, the star of 10 Minutes to Midnight's Amy Marlowe, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio.